The mission of Ag Arts is to imagine and promote healthy food systems through the arts. We do this in a number of ways. For example, this podcast, Ag Arts from Horse and Buggy Land, and your help, your donation, funds our technical assistance, our website, our manager, and pays our rent here. We also do this through our Farm to Artist residencies. And on these residencies, artists do their work on farms, real working farms, and there they understand the issues of the farmers and reflect that in their art. Your funding keeps us alive. Please make a donation on our website, agarts.org, A-G-A-R-T-S dot O-R-G, or click the link in the show notes and hit that donation button. It's Ag Arts from Horse and Buggy Land, and I'm your host, Mary Swander. Today we're going to hear a story from Levi Lyle, a farmer near Kyoto, Iowa. Lyle is a social worker, a writer, a musician, and a farmer. He helps others transition to organic farming. He farms himself with his father, and he has a business called Indigenous Fruit Enterprises, where he grows crops like tart cherries and aronia berries that he turns into salsa, jelly, juice, and even candles. This story was originally told at the Practical Farmers of Iowa conference in January. Here's Levi Lyle. When I moved back to the farm more than a decade ago, I resolved to find where I fit among a farmscape of industrial agriculture. I was observing more frequent gully washers, an expression for hard rain, and the beginning of a new normal for severe, severe weather. The following experience unfolds during that process of trying to figure out how I fit onto the farm. Following a June hailstorm that whipped and tattered the leaves of the corn, my father and I went out to the field to meet the crop insurance adjuster. Crop insurance works like this. If the severity of the bullet-sized holes in the corn result in yield loss, the insurance adjuster writes up a report and the farmer gets a check in the mail for the profits that he would have received. As, this, as the insurance adjuster pulled up in his car that day, he got out. What I noticed was that he was about my age, average sized build, nothing particular, until he came walking across the road towards us. At that time, I saw he had a limp in his walk. During introductions, I recall two things. One, he had children about the same age as my children. And two, he was a veteran. We started out into the field. We came to the headland rows, and first we had to cross the perpendicular headland rows. He struggled to lift his leg up over that first row. He grimaced in discomfort. I thought to myself, oh boy, this is going to be uncomfortable for him. By the time we got to row 24, and there was nothing but the long, straight rows ahead of us, it would be much easier for him now. I sensed he was relieved. I was thinking to myself, is being a crop insurance adjuster really the right job for this person? 
So <clears throat> it's then that I got up the nerve to ask, is your injury related to your military service? He told me a remarkable story that would help shift and shape the way I think of my place on the farm. He said, I was working for the state patrol, doing a routine traffic stop, writing a ticket, speeding ticket of all things, when I was struck by a passing by automobile. I was hurt badly landing about 20 feet from the scene. A semi-truck driver passing by saw this as an opportunity to steal a state patrolman's handgun. He came over and he was trying to pull the gun from my holster. I was fading in and out of consciousness and I was in a struggle with him. Meanwhile, another passerby in his semi-truck saw what was happening and he understood that a state patrolman's 40 millimeter is worth a lot of money on the black market. He came down from his big rig. He was 6'6 and 300 pounds. He came over and picked up that no good, fill in your expletive, up, up into the sky he went like a bird. I was relieved. I shattered my leg, but I would be okay. And the best part was, this angel of a man, my hero, came to see me in the hospital, and I got to thank him. By now, we were only a little ways out into the cornfield because we were walking slowly due to his disabled leg. I didn't know what to say. It didn't matter, though, because he rolled right on to his next story. During basic training, after a three-day sleep deprivation test, the sergeant called me into his office. He wanted me to apply to SEAL school. I turned to him, Navy SEAL? One year later, I was in Colombia doing undercover drug cartel intelligence. My job was to take down the bad guys or die trying. I was shot multiple times. We were a little further out into the cornfield now. And I was thinking, this man has suffered trauma. I had been a school guidance counselor previously, so I understood sometimes the best thing you can do is just to listen. Here we were at the most beautiful place in the world, the middle of an Iowa cornfield in mid-June. <laughs> the tranquility of the open space, the breeze whispering through the ears of corn. I knew it was my job at that moment just to listen. If there wouldn't have been any people out there in the field to hear his story, I'm sure he would have been telling his story anyway. He continued, I was wired. I got found out and things went very badly for me. I was shot in the neck, the hip, the shoulder. One in my belly just missed my spine. Navy SEALs carry plugs made of cotton. You push them into the wound and they expand. They are amazing because they get you back into the fight. <clears throat> By now, we were nearing a low area of the cornfield. I could hear water trickling from a nearby tile into the creek. This is where goalies notoriously fester in this field. Heaps of woven wire fences are in those goalies. 
reclaimed by the earth. I had spent my childhood tearing out those woven wire fences so we could farm fence row to fence row. Now in a tangle of sagebrush and birch that wound their way up through those rusty woven wire fences, up into the sky, into a canopy, songbirds were singing. These rolls of rusty woven wire fence plug wounds. And being an insurance adjuster was the perfect job for this person. I understand now where I fit on the farm. I see the farmland as the ancestral mother earth, Gaia. The importance of the lunar cycles, the changing of the seasons, protecting the land from those goalie washers during the steady growth of corn all through the summer, like the unreprising care of a mother. like Levi Lyle have crop insurance, but we have no assurance that our postmaster will stay with us for more than a few months. Free Martintown shares a post office, of course, with nearby Bulltown, where we business people go to get our mail, and others come to buy stamps and send packages of essential oils and Christmas cookies to Indiana and Ohio. We all get our weekly copies of the paper, the local rag, and the budget, the Amish newspaper that is as thick as the Sunday New York Times, with columns by scribes or reporters from all the Amish and Mennonite communities throughout the world. They keep us abreast of everything from the births and deaths in the Randolph Amish community in Mississippi to the help the Ukrainian refugees are receiving from the Christian aid ministries in Romania. The Bulltown PO is a hub of activity. Without home phones or email, the Amish still write letters and find those white pre-stamped postcards a big bargain. They send postcards from Free Martintown to Bulltown relatives with cryptic notes, Sunday dinner, here, or taking Bessie to auction Monday, saving themselves the time and money it would take to hitch up the buggy and travel that distance to convey the message. We also understand that each post office in the state works like its own business. They each have to turn a profit, and the buildings are independently owned, some say by one of our past governors. But that's all politics that we don't engage in. Instead, we do try to support our post office just like any other local business. For heaven's sakes, we don't want to lose it and have to travel another 10 miles to the nearest small town that still has a P.O. with its door open. During the pandemic, we weren't too obedient about the federal signs that went up on our post office walls and doors. 
People in Free Martintown are not too thrilled by being told what to do, especially by the government. Stand here, not there. Cover your face. Don't cough. Don't sneeze. Get back behind the plexiglass. Faith, our postmaster, was none too pleased with our noncompliance and tried to explain the situation to the Amish who had a hard time believing in the seriousness of the plague. But we're getting through this difficult period, and we're quite grateful that we even have a post office store. For a few days last winter, we did not. That's when Faith pasted a big sign on the door. Please put your vehicle in park and turn off the engine before entering this post office. Below the sign was a photo of a pickup crashing right through the door of the P.O., glass flying everywhere. On cold winter days, we'd gotten in the habit of pulling right up in front of the post office, leading our cars and heaters running and dashing in to grab our mail. Faith put an end to that. Faith came to us after a long string of postmasters. They all tried, then quit. Faith quickly caught on to the rest of our customs and accommodated us. Those of us who live in the country with packages to send simply put the parcel in our rural boxes with a signed blank check. Our carrier takes the package to town, weighs it in the P.O., and fills in the check for the correct postage. I'm frequently away from home for long stretches with no clear-cut idea of a return date. Before leaving, I fill out an obligatory yellow slip asking Faith to hold my mail. Upon my return, my mail magically appears in my rural box the next day. How does this happen? I once asked Faith. Don't you want me to send another slip when I get home? Oh, no need for that, she said. Dave saw your car in the lane when he was driving the route and knew you were home. Sometimes this efficiency goes overboard. Last spring, I ordered some new sound recording equipment and didn't want it delivered to my home in the country for fear it would be sitting on my front stoop all afternoon in the rain. So I gave the online company my business address thinking that Faith would hold the audio equipment at the P.O. for me. One problem, I forgot that online companies can't deliver to P.O. boxes. I finished up my work early one Friday and left my office mid-afternoon, not returning until mid-afternoon Monday. I pulled up my car in front of my office and there were three boxes filled with recorders, microphones, and stands all piled in front of my door. Had they been there on the sidewalk since Friday afternoon, Saturday morning? The good citizens of Free Martintown simply walking past them? Now when they take it from the mailbox, the journey's just begun. Cause in a machine or a human's gotta cancel each and every one. So we grew to love Faith for her faith in us and for her faithfulness to the job. 
We knew she lived 15 miles from Bulltown and drove back and forth in the worst weather. Sometimes when we had blizzards or ice storms, she actually spent the night in the P.O., something right out of a Eudora Welty short story. Faith was so pleased when a coffee shop opened right across the street from the P.O., where she could eat breakfast. And she was even happier when the rec center opened where she could take a shower. Faith spruced up the drab front facade of the post office with brightly colored rural post boxes made by our school children. And when anyone left town for a more exotic place, she requested a picture postcard that she used to decorate her tiny office. Faith became like family and we were relieved when she stayed so long. Our previous postmaster stayed three months, maybe a whole year if we were lucky. One up and left in the middle of the night, and our budgets piled up in the P.O. like piles of cordwood. So some tears were shed when Faith wrote a letter to the paper announcing her resignation. She was retiring, she insisted, but we all knew better. Faith thanked the post office employees for their hard work, how they put in long hours during the holidays when they wanted to be home with their families, how they kept delivering the mail through the rain, sleet, snow, and gloom of night, how they were chased and sometimes even bitten by our dogs. Then Faith thanked the customers for their stories and postcards and how, out of kindness, they shoveled the sidewalk in the winter. She thanked the Amish for shoveling up their horses' droppings, too, when their buggies were tied to the stop sign in front of the P.O. But Faith, like all postmasters who came before her, finally confessed our names drove her nuts. I've loved this job, but how many ways can you spell Hostetler, she asked. In the early settlement days, there were only a handful of Amish who came here, and most of the 5,000 Amish and Mennonite in this region now are direct descendants of this original group. We may have 20 surnames tops, with subtle multiple spellings of each name. For example, we have Hostedlers and Hochstedlers and Hostedlers. We have Schlabas and Schlabachs and Slabachs. We have Bontragers and Borntragers. millers on my rural route and probably as many yoders. We have hundreds of gingeriches, troyers, beaches, benders, rops, shrocks, and zooks. Amish first names tend to come out of the Bible, multiplying like loaves and fishes. Mary, Eldon, Levi, Lydia, and Jake. There are so many similar first names with so few choices for last names 
that middle initials are used to distinguish one person from another. If a father's name was Tobias Yoder, each of his sons might take T for a middle name. So we have Samuel T. Yoder, Amos T. Yoder, Eli T. Yoder, Moses T. Yoder, and David T. Yoder. And we simply call that family the T's. Among themselves, the Amish identify couples by both husband and wife first names. David T. Yoder, married to his wife Martha, becomes David Martha, and Martha becomes Martha David. It took longtime post office clerk Brandy to untangle most of the mysteries. Once, Faith received a letter to Mary Yoder in Fremartentown. No street address, no zip code. Faith knew of at least 10 Mary Yoders in the area. What am I supposed to do with this? She asked Brandy. What's the return address? Brandy asked. And when Faith showed her the envelope, she said, Oh, that's Mary Yoder's brother's wife's cousin who married a miller and moved to Ohio. So that's Mary Yoder on 560th Street. And then there are the M names. Mary and Miriam are common women's names, but they are easy to keep track of compared to the Amish men's names. One nuclear family alone might have a Malin, a Merle, a Marvin, a Moses, and a Marlin. If that isn't enough, you might open the paper and find that a Schwarzendruber has married a Schwarzendruber, or a Yoder has married another Yoder, and they are living temporarily in their parents' basement or the Grandpa Dottie house. Yet they still need a new address number and an identifying 911 stake pounded into the ditch in front of their farmstead. On Faith's final day, we all gathered in the P.O. parking lot and sent her off with a party of cake and ice cream. We wished her well and thanked her for putting up with us all these years. She was the best. She raced out to the highway and picked up our mail from the road herself when a tornado hit one of the mail trucks. She sandbagged and stood nervously in the post office front door, watching the 2008 floodwaters lap at the step. Then the pharmacist next door let loose a raft of rubber ducks, and she laughed, watching them float by. There's been no postmaster like her, and never will. And we've never had anyone else with the name Faith in Fremartentown. Now, here's a poem I wrote about this whole situation called The Ballad of the Bulltown P.O. I was thrilled to have Melissa Cartoon Capizio from Reading, Connecticut, put it to music, and she sings and plays it for you now. We are hosteppers and hocksteppers, all heirs of the Amish settlers. We are schlabas and schlabachs, all with the same name. We are beaches and rocks, 
Benders and Zerfs, Von Traegers and Born Traegers and Gravers and Shrugs. Through the wind and the rain, the snow and the sleet, you carry our letters, our budget and treat. We marry and move to the basement or the lane, to the new little dotty house to drive you insane. We are Hostetlers and Hochstetlers, all heirs of the Amish settlers. We are Schlabas and Schlabachs, all with the same name. We are Beachies and Raps, Benders and Zooks, Bontragers and Borntragers, and Gravers and Shrugs. There are five hundred millers on one rural route, and five hundred yoders with Troyers to boot. We are multiple Marys and Eldens and Jakes. We are T's and E's to keep ourselves straight. We are Hostetlers and Hochstetlers, all heirs of the Amish settlers. We are Schlabas and Schlabachs, all with the same name. We are Beachies and Raps, Benders and Zooks, Von Traegers and Born Traegers, and Gravers and Shrugs. We marry and move to our husband's home farm. Our names never change, we're Schwartz and Drubers again. We marry and move and raise four tall sons. They're Moses and Merle and Marv and Malen. We are Hostetlers and Hochstetlers, all heirs of the Amish settlers. We are Schlabas and Schlabachs, all with the same name. We are Beachies and Robs. Benders and Zooks, Von Traegers and Born Traegers and Gravers and Shrocks. We are Beachies and Robs, Benders and Zooks, Von Traegers and Born Traegers and Gravers and Shrocks. That was Melissa Cartoon Capizio with vocals and guitar, harmonizing with herself. You can harmonize with us on our new Substack page called Mary Swander's Buggy Land. Just go to maryswander.substack.com. There you'll find written excerpts of my monologues and interviews, photographs, and videos. You can leave comments and subscribe for free or help us out with a bit of cash. All money goes to paying for this podcast and for our Ag Arts residencies on farms. And that brings our episode to an end. We were produced by Rick Brewer of Brew Ha Ha Audio Productions in our studios on Main Street in sunny Fremartentown. We had support today and would like to thank the Cinepid Fund, the Iowa Arts Council, the Werner Ellithorpe Fund at the Oregon Community Foundation, and the Calio Levine Fund, and all of you who have sent us individual, private donations. We welcome your support. Like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. 
Subscribe and never miss a podcast. Become a member or simply go to our website, agarts.org, and hit that red donation button. See you next time. Bruhaha. Some banging upstairs. I'm trying to wait for it to stop. <laughs>